Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS. And that link will be in the show notes. Once you start to fix your period problems, like once you start to look at your gut health and your liver health and all of the other aspects of your health, your stress in particular, things will start to shift. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today on The Less Stress Life, we have a very fun, sassy woman, Nicole Jardim. I should have asked her if that's how we pronounce her name. I go through this every time. So Nicole <laughs> is a certified women's health coach and the creator of Fix Your Period, which is a noble cause. It's a series of programs that empower women to reclaim their hormone health using a method that combines evidence-based information with simplicity and sass. Her work has impacted the lives of tens of thousands of women around the world and addresses a wide variety of period problems, including PMS, irregular periods, PCOS, painful and heavy periods, missing periods, and many more. Rather than treating problems or symptoms, Nicole treats women by addressing the root cause of what's going on in their mind and bodies. She's the upcoming author, or actually it might be out by now, of Fix Your Period, The Six Weeks to Banish Bloating, Conquer Cramps, Manage Moodiness, and Ignite Lasting Hormone Balance. So we'll be talking about that a little bit later today. And finally, she is the co-host of The Period Party, which obviously when you name your podcast that, you know you're in for a treat. It is a top-rated podcast on iTunes, and it's been called Women's Health Expert for sites such as The Guardian, Well and Good, Mind, Body, Green, and Healthline. So anyway, thank you for joining me today, Nicole. Welcome to the show. And thank you so much for having me, Krista. I'm so excited to chat with you. Good. I feel like you're, that was hilarious about the period party. It's true. You know what you're getting. <laughs> yeah, you know what you're getting. Yep. Yes. And actually, Nicole and I chatted, gosh, I think before the holidays with her and, and her co-host, Nat, who is from Australia, very fun time on the period party over there. So, yes, I know. I can't wait for that episode to come out. Yeah. Um, we're talking all about food sensitivities and hormone imbalance. So so it's a big one. It is. Um, and it's mm-hmm. very, speaking of buzzwords, right? Food sensitivities are kind of a buzzword. <laughs> they make people interested. Hormone imbalance is a buzzword, I feel like. As soon as you say that, eyes pop up. People are like, I think that all my symptoms are related to hormone imbalance. But that's such a giant blanket term. Would you agree, Nicole? What does that mean to you? When people say my hormones are imbalanced, what do you think they're really wanting to say? 
Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that we're generally pretty confused about what a hormonal imbalance is, right? Because like you said, it's really a blanket term and it can feel really overwhelming because when you think of hormones, you think of all of these different things that are going on in your body. And then you're like, okay, is it my menstrual cycle? Is it my hunger? Is it my gut? Is it my stress? Like everything, it's all the things. And I remember years ago when I was polling women before I created my Fix Your Period program, I asked them, you know, what came to mind when they heard the word hormones? And most of them said things along the lines of, you know, like hormones make me think of puberty or pregnancy or raging PMS or bad moods or hot flashes and night sweats like in menopause. And, you know, the whole oh, she's so hormonal. Why can't I stop crying? Why am I so feeling so bitchy? (laughs) You know, things like that are what we relate to hormones. And usually in a lot of cases, that's relating back to our menstrual cycles or our reproductive function. And so we don't really think too much about what's happening overall in our bodies when it comes to what hormones do. And then you add the words hormone or you add imbalance or hormone imbalance to the mix. And I feel like there's so much confusion. And so I think the first thing is that hormones need a bit of a rebrand in that they really need to be viewed in a more positive way, sort of as the essential chemical messengers that they are. And when I started studying them, I'd never really heard of them being talked about in a way that was helpful to us or to our lives. They were just talked about as if they were the bane of every woman's existence. So I think that's the first thing, right? So we need a little bit of a makeover for the hormones because they actually do these incredible things. They are the stars of the show and they should really be revered. They shouldn't be constantly put down as these things that cause so many problems for us. So I think that's the first thing. And then when it comes to actual, like an actual hormonal imbalance, what does that mean? So I think that, you know, again, when we come back to what's happening with our menstrual cycle or period, you know, we may have really heavy periods or we may have terrible PMS. And I think that the PMS is really where we think there's a hormone issue just because it's so obvious that there's something wrong because we're having, you know, just raging symptoms in many cases. And so when we're thinking about what an actual hormonal imbalance looks like, I always ask everyone to start to think of our brain as command central, you know, like hormonal headquarters. And it keeps all of the systems in our bodies working in harmony, right? So it's this dispatch center for your endocrine system. And your adrenal glands and your pancreas tend to be the two endocrine glands that are the first responders, so to speak, for any kind of stress that's happening externally, sometimes internally as well, right? So when we think about that, right, your brain is taking in all this information from your external environment. It tells your adrenal glands to produce cortisol, other stress hormones to help you cope with what it perceives to be a potentially life-threatening situation. So it's that fight or flight survival response that we all know about for the most part. It told our ancestors to run for the hills or to face an enemy and, you know, and have strength and do what needed to do. So, you know, I always think about this from a more modern perspective in that, When we're faced with this kind of stress, which is pretty frequent, so it's almost on an hourly basis for some of us, 
our body is constantly responding in this way, right? Because it doesn't know the difference between what was going on 10,000 years ago and what's happening now when you're stuck in traffic or you're dealing with your boss or you've just gotten into a fight with your partner or something like that. And so what happens is a response over time, which is, you know, the stress response over time manifests as symptoms. And so the symptoms of a hormonal imbalance or the beginning of a hormonal imbalance, unfortunately, are things that we kind of have normalized. We've sort of made them mainstream, so to speak, like when you can't fall asleep at night or you're waking up in the middle of the night and you don't know why, or you wake up in the morning after a full night of sleep and you feel groggy and out of it and you need multiple cups of coffee to get you going. And then there are other things as well, like, you know, constantly feeling energy crashes throughout the day or feeling like you get hangry a lot of the time or you eat and then you're starving for, you know, within an hour after eating. So all of these symptoms have been perpetually normalized in our society. But those to me are the beginning signs of a hormonal imbalance because that's a sign that your cortisol, your daytime hormone and your melatonin, your nighttime hormone are off or they're not playing nice together anymore. And insulin, which is your blood sugar balancing hormone, is also struggling because we're maybe drinking too much coffee or we're not eating in a way that works for our unique physiology. So that's really what I ask everyone to start to pay attention to first. And if those are happening, then there's going to be a downstream effect where those queen bee hormones, cortisol and insulin and melatonin too, are going to have an impact on your sex hormones. So that's estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, DHEA, and of course your thyroid hormones as well. And those are then going to start showing up as different kinds of symptoms, whether it's related to your thyroid or your menstrual cycle. So it's really, you know, it's a complicated dance of hormones, but ultimately we have to be looking upstream to figure out where hormonal imbalances actually start. I love how you explained that as the brain is the command center and you gave the queen bee hormones, which affect the sex hormones downstream, which affect other things. Something that I think a lot of people are struggling with that you addressed in many ways, what you said was really subclinical blood sugar imbalances. Because sometimes when we oh, talk about yeah. blood sugar imbalances, people say, I don't have diabetes. Like, I am good. But I'm sorry if you have been hangry, hungry, angry, if that's a common thing for you. If you've got a, you know what resonates, what used to resonate with me, a lot less now, when you make sure you don't leave the house with snacks in your bag or lots of yes. them because like you can't even make it because you could get shaky. That is not normal. That was like my life. And I was like, well, and you know, to even back up, like you can look at your history. My mom did have gestational diabetes when I was in the womb, which maybe set me up for not awesome after that. But I think, you know, it's probably a lot of other lifestyle things. So my point is, let's riff into that a little bit. Like, let's talk about how yeah. people feel a blood sugar imbalance and what they can do right now to do some self experiments to start to correct that because that is such a problem that doesn't get very much airtime. Oh, I could not agree with you more. I love that. Like leaving the house with snacks as if you have a two-year-old <laughs> on your hands. And, you know, I think the first thing to start to think about is, okay, what does balanced blood sugar look like? What am I aiming for? And when I think of balanced blood sugar, you know, I think of feeling consistent energy throughout the day, right? So there's no marked crashes or bouts of sleepiness. You're experiencing minimal to no cravings for sugar, 
or caffeine, sorry, everyone who's listening, you experience no cravings for sugar after a meal in particular. And things like you're able to fall asleep and stay asleep without waking up because blood sugar can crash in the middle of the night unbeknownst to us. And you also wake up with energy for your day ahead. You feel stable in your moods and you're not having meltdowns or crashes like mood crashes. And you feel little to no physical pain, right? So that's joint pain, headaches, period cramps, it all falls under that umbrella. And so when we're looking about at unbalanced blood sugar, that's really looking like crazy energy highs and crashes, right? So one minute you're wide awake, the next minute you are unable to keep your eyes open. I know that we've all experienced that at 3 p.m. at some point or another. You know, we have sugar and caffeine cravings, especially first thing in the morning or that mid-morning, mid-afternoon or even after dinner time. There's extreme hunger and, you know, we just talked about the hangriness, but I think that that's huge too because we tend to not listen to the body's cues. Trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, not being able to get up in the morning, you're just hitting the snooze button all the time. And then like I was saying, these instability in your mood, right? So you have this moodiness and you don't know why you're having meltdowns, you're having anxiety. And it comes back to what you were talking about with the snacks. Like you're, if you feel as though if, if you're not going to eat, you're going to freak out or something, you know, catastrophic is going to happen. If you don't get food in 30 minutes, that's a sign that something is definitely up. And, you know, when I think about blood sugar and your menstrual cycle, I think it's so important for us to be talking about this, right? Because there are insulin receptors on our ovaries and excess insulin actually raises LH. So that's luteinizing hormone. And so that's a hormone that rises very high right before ovulation. And it's what causes your ovary to release an egg, right? So it's the trigger. And the thing with LH though, is that it actually causes the ovaries to produce more androgens such as testosterone and less estradiol and estrone that they usually make. And so what happens then? So when we our ovaries are producing excess testosterone in lieu of the estrogen it's supposed to make, this whole feedback loop between your ovaries and your brain, command central, like we were talking about, it just goes a little haywire. So it gets interrupted. And the egg that is supposed to be released from your ovary is not able to grow adequately and then ultimately be released. So then we have a situation of sporadic ovulation or lack of ovulation. And ovulation, as you know, Krista, is so critical for our overall female health. So we have this situation where that could be happening. We also have another arm of that where high insulin can lower sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG. And this is designed to bind up testosterone so that it's not all available at once. So of course, when SHBG goes down, that testosterone starts to rev up and it's, you know, there's more free testosterone in your blood that can compound the issue. So we have, you know, multiple ways that insulin can impact your menstrual cycle. Yeah, let's talk about some, I think there's a few ways to address this. And you said you were talking about ovulation, which is really in your childbearing years, all your body cares about, like everything is yes. centered around ovulation. And so ovulation is kind of the first thing. I mean, that's really like the thing that's going to affect whether you have that period. So really, it's like fix your period totally. is kind of fix your ovulation. So if you're not ovulating, which you can figure <laughs> out by strips, then you are not like that is a sign your body is trying to send you. But you said sporadic ovulation, which reminded me of sporadic eating, which I feel like is related to blood sugar imbalances. So I want to just talk about this because when people have let this go for so long, there's a few nutrients that really get out of whack. It seems like chromium, magnesium, vitamin D are some of the key ones I think of when I'm trying to support mm -hmm. like cellular health to improve insulin sensitivity. But also 
the way we sort of, at least like in the US, and I'm pretty sure it's happening in the rest of the world too, we're like this go, go, go society. And talking about fasting in this is kind of a whole different conversation. So I'm going to talk about like regular spaced eating where you're actually getting like a high quality protein, fat and carb, like spaced apart. Like that's step one to getting things on track. Because when you're drinking a bunch of sweet stuff and you don't even realize it, right, you're spiking things or a tricky, tricky one. And coffee is totally great. Everyone loves coffee. Not everyone. But, um, you know, that can that can have its own like sometimes downstream. Stuff. Anyway, my point is protein, fat and carb at kind of regular intervals is like a good experiment for a few days. Like, let's see how I feel if I'm just eating like if I'm not because when we get hangry, sometimes we're not. I have someone I talk about this a lot with, but I feel like this is everyone's story. We don't eat enough and then we binge at the next meal, right? So that's a terrible Mm -hmm. feeling because then we kind of beat ourselves up and it gives us the symptoms of imbalanced blood sugar because it is. I didn't get enough at that one meal to the point where I'm like starving at the next meal. So finding like the goal here is feeling satisfied and feeling good and that's going to help you feel good in your mood and in your body. So anyway, I don't know if you have things to add to that, but I just wanted to talk about like, hey, this is something you can experiment with. Right now, a little bit. Yeah. I love that so much. I think that we really have to go into whether it's fixing period problems or any other health issue that we're currently dealing with. We really have to go into it with a mindset of experimentation and not judgment. So remove the judgment glasses because at the end of the day, if you can just have an open attitude and just pay attention to the signs and symptoms that you're experiencing, your body will tell you so much. I constantly talk about this, this idea of, you know, period literacy. It's based on the term body literacy. And I sort of took a little step further, but the idea is that you're using your period as a barometer for your overall health, right? Because ovulation, your menstrual cycle in general is a sign of what's happening under the hood. It's a sign of what's happening happening with your overall health and well-being. And so if you can, you know, take away those feelings of frustration with your body that it's not doing the right thing, you will start to really see patterns emerge. And that like you were saying, Krista, it makes so much sense. Like you'll start to notice certain times of the day when you crave something or you feel your energy is dropped or whatever that might be. So I always really encourage people to take that attitude of experimentation into this and just observation more than judgment or frustration with their bodies. Speaking of period literacy, that is a great segue into, I think even though like we should know this. A lot of times when I'm asking people when the first day of their last cycle was, I know that this is just something that happens and we are not always kind of paying attention to what's going on with our body or we're not totally aware of what's happening. Like we generally, we know some basics, but I think there's a little bit more. So let's go over menstrual cycle 101. Tell us about cycle length, what's appropriate for different ages and kind of what's happening during that time. Oh my gosh. Yes. This is so exciting. I love this. I think that this information should 100% be available to everyone. I think it's a woman's birthright to have this. And 
when it comes to not knowing about our cycles, I feel like we're just perpetually feeling like we're just left in the dark and, you know, unable to make educated decisions about our bodies. So this information is, I think, so crucial for all of us. And so when it comes to what your period should look like, I kind of laugh, you know, because over the years I've gotten literally probably thousands of questions, you know, how long should my period be? Is it normal to spot before or after my period? What should the period blood look like? Does it matter if I have clots? Like what if they're big? You know, there's so many questions that we're just mortified about asking our gynecologists. And I was actually having lunch with a friend of mine the other day, and I had just posted on Instagram about periods and poops. And she was just like, I can't believe so many women experience this. I'm too mortified to ask my gynecologist. And I was like, what? You are? I guess I've just you know talked about this for so long now that I can't imagine that people are still, but I know that there really are. So first of all, I like to define what a period is, right? So everyone should understand that your period is the day one of your cycle is day one of bleeding, right? And your period is usually somewhere between three and seven days. That's really what I like to see as a normal length of a period. And then your menstrual cycle is actually the entire cycle from day one of your bleeding until the day before your next period. So sometimes there's a little bit of confusion around that. And everyone should also understand too, that a true period is always preceded by ovulation, right? So this is really important because if you're on the pill or you're on another form of hormonal birth control, that's suppressing ovulation, you're really just having what's known as a withdrawal bleed. You're not having an actual period. So again, like you're just bleeding because there's a hormone withdrawal. So that's the first thing. And I also get a lot of questions about, do I need to have a period? And yes, while many Medically, they say that a period is unnecessary. I actually really feel as though a period is because it gives you so many clues about what's going on with your overall health. So coming back to that, the length of your period, we're looking at three to seven days, ideally somewhere between three and five days. I find that when we're pushing up to seven days, it tends to be on the heavier, longer side, which is not super ideal. But again, I want everyone to just be confident in their own norm because these are all of these numbers are based on statistics. And of course, we know that statistics aren't the actual person's individual body. So that's a period length. Length of your actual menstrual cycle, I really like to see between 25 and 35 days. You know, there's definitely a lot of debate on what's considered normal and what isn't. 25 to 35 days works well for the women I have seen in my practice and just the women I've had experience with. The scientific literature says somewhere between 21 and 35 days. But what I find is that in cycles that are below 25 days, so 24 days and less, what I tend to see is heavier longer periods and short luteal phases. And a luteal phase is that second half of your cycle after you ovulate. And that can only be a certain length. And if it's too short, what happens is we end up in a situation where we have what the condition called luteal phase defect. And ultimately what that means is that if you were to be trying to get pregnant, for instance, it would be quite difficult because that luteal phase should really be 10 days or more in order to facilitate that egg traveling down the fallopian tube and implanting into your uterine lining. So it needs a certain amount of time. And if that uterine lining is starting to break down before the egg is reached, then you will not get pregnant. So that's, you know, again, a problem, not only for fertility, but also because you want to make sure that the hormones that govern your menstrual cycle are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so with that 
luteal phase, progesterone is the dominant hormone. And if progesterone is low, which is the case almost epidemically at this point, your uterine lining will not be able to stay in place and it will start to disintegrate. So coming back to the length of the cycle, so like I said, 24 days and shorter tends to be a problem sometimes, not in all cases. Sometimes you have a 22-day cycle and you're all good. On the flip side, over 35 days, Usually that's a sign of what you were just talking about, Krista, about the sporadic ovulation, right? So you're not ovulating consistently. So you probably ovulated at some at day 20 something, and then you got your period somewhere, you know, around day 36, 37, somewhere around there. But what I see is the sporadic ovulation is caused by so many underlying issues. And so that's what we have to figure out, right? Usually is, are you ovulating? If you are ovulating, awesome. If you're ovulating sporadically, we need to figure out why that is. And, you know, we've talked about this a little while ago when it comes to blood sugar, when it comes to stress in your life, whether that is psychological stress, mental, emotional stress, it could be stress from not consuming enough calories. It could be multiple different avenues. There could be too many environmental toxins in your body, in your life, your liver is not working to process them effectively. So there are multiple reasons why one might not be ovulating consistently. And so that's where you have to start to dig and see what's going on. I can't tell you how often, I'm sure you see this all the time too. Once you start paying attention, because there's a certain time with clients where I may say, we're going to pay attention to period length now or a little bit later or whatnot. It's funny once you start paying attention, if there's a particularly stressful month. So the frustrating thing about a period, which is not frustrating, (laughs) is that it only shows up once a month. So you only get once a month to really kind of see what that's happening. So it's kind of like a slow, like you got to be a little bit patient to kind of see how that goes. And sometimes the downstream effect of like, let's say someone moved, that can throw off your ovulation. Let's say like, it's funny, like the things that you're just dealing with and you're like, oh my gosh, that was a horrendous period or I had blah, blah, blah. Like it really makes a big difference when you start paying attention. It's just really interesting. Isn't it fascinating? I mean, I have had, I've converted so many women because as part of paying attention to your cycle and what's going on throughout the cycle, what you're doing really is, you know, you're charting your symptoms, right? So you're tracking them on an app or on some kind of paper chart or whatever. And when you start to have this information, you can't really go back. (laughs) It's kind of addictive to really be able to understand your unique rhythm and your flow in a way that no one else ever will. And when you have that kind of information about yourself and that data, you can take that to your doctor, you can take that to a practitioner that you're working with and really have these educated conversations where you're both communicating on a level of understanding that you would not have had before. And I was totally that girl. I would go to the doctor, they would ask me when my last period was and I was like, "Mm, I'll just make up a date. (laughs) sometime like two, three weeks ago. And that's what I did for years. And so I laugh at that because I never millionaires thought that this is what I would be doing. But I just want everyone to understand that it is totally possible to have this kind of knowledge about your body and be empowered in this way. So I think the other thing is, you know, coming back to the cycle and what's normal and what's not is, you know, like, what should it look like, right? Like how much blood loss is normal and all of that. And it's interesting because, you know, from the scientific 
evidence that I've found, you know, the average range is about 35 to 50 milliliters. And I encourage you to pour that into a measuring cup to see what that looks like. It's not a whole lot. But what's interesting is that it's very difficult to measure blood loss in science, of course, because there's multiple things that are coming out of your body with that blood. There are clots, there's tissue, there are other fluids. So anyway, the point is, is that a way to know whether you have too much blood loss or you have too little, because that's an issue as well. Oftentimes, uh, we don't realize that's an issue because whoever said, oh, I wish I could bleed more. You know, like, nobody really says that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what I always recommend is, you know, paying attention to how many pads or tampons or period underwear or menstrual cups you're going through in a cycle. So just so everyone knows, like a regular tampon or pad and even a pair of period underwear mostly would hold about five milliliters or one teaspoon of blood. And so in a normal cycle, about six to 10 pads or tampons should be soaked. But a lot of us change those much more regularly. So it, you know, it really just depends. But I say like, if you're going over 16 tampons or pads, then that might mean something is up. Like you might have a heavier flow. And another way to know too is are the clots that you're seeing more than an inch long? Is your blood like super dark? Are you noticing that you're changing like every one to two hours? That's another sign as well. Are you getting up in the middle of the night to change pads or tampons or period underwear or your menstrual cup? All of these are signs that things are going on as well as anemia as too. Like if you're exhausted by your period and you are also dealing with iron deficiency anemia, those are signs too. And then on the flip side, if you are not bleeding a lot, you might go through just a few tampons or pads for your entire menstrual cycle. And or maybe even just one, you might notice that your period blood is lighter in color, it's kind of pinkish, it's watery, it's not a vibrant red. You might also notice that it looks like it's just spotting. And you know, you're really only bleeding for like one or two days out of the month. Why do people have clots in their period blood? Oh my goodness. Well, there are multiple reasons. I think one of the first things is if you have low progesterone, so just so everyone knows, estrogen, I consider that to be the builder hormones. That's the hormone that dominates that first half of your cycle. So it's building, building, building. It's building your uterine lining. It's getting ready for ovulation. It's setting the foundation. And then progesterone comes in and it sort of smooths the walls and hangs the paintings and whatever. And you know, it's meant to sort of fluff up the uterine lining for a potential implantation. And so like I was saying before, you know, I just feel like we have an epidemic of low progesterone Mm -hmm. in our society and this excess estrogen in relation to progesterone that's been happening for, I mean, she's countless of my clients and many women I've encountered online. And so what I found is that when there is an imbalance between those two hormones, because they're kind of sister hormones and they need to play nice together, we end up in a situation where that uterine lining has built up so much and progesterone is not high enough to keep that estrogen building tendency in check. And so we have a much more thickened uterine lining, which could lead to more clots. And so everyone knows progesterone is a thinner outer, right? So it thins out the uterine lining. That's why if you were on a progestin-only birth control and you experience lots of bleeding, it could be because the progestin dose is high and it's thinning out your uterine lining and causing a lot of bleeding. So progesterone does technically the same thing, just not as potently as progestin, the fake progesterone. So what it does is it will thin that out. But if you just don't have enough of it, you end up with these clots, you end up with huge amounts of bleeding when you actually get your period. I think the other thing is too, is that 
we spend an insane amount of time sitting and our pelvic organs are suffering for that. So what I found is that we tend to not have great blood flow to this region of our bodies. And I found that that also seems to be connected. I'm not entirely sure of the mechanism, but I definitely think that something's up there as well too. And so obviously I, I recommend, you know, doing castor oil packs if you do have clots to really help break up any kind of, or to help really bring blood flow and circulation to that area. I feel like that's really helpful. I think that it's so important for us to be doing hormone testing to figure out what's going on with our estrogen and our progesterone to see whether they're, you know, in the right ratio or then in the right balance so that you're not in a situation where, you know, estrogen is continuing to feed your uterine lining unopposed for long periods of time. I do want to talk about hormone testing, but first, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about, you were talking about the luteal phase and progesterone going up. By the way, I like how you personified the estrogen and progesterone. Those are different personalities than I give them, but I love their personalities. The building builder and the thinner outer or like the picture hanger. The interior director. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I always talk about progesterone very commonly being associated good mood. I always call her kind of the homecoming queen. So like if we were predicting our mood, I mean, really, there's like we can keep mood balanced for many ways. But is it appropriate to say the second half of your cycle, you should be in a decent mood if progesterone is looking good? And in general, I'm going to build another question onto that that I just remembered. Do cycles follow lunar or moon cycles? There's a little bit of research about that. Yes. Yes, there is. Okay. So the first question is, should you be in a decent mood in that second half of your cycle? And technically, yes. I often say that PMS symptoms are certainly something that's prevalent. There's no doubt about that. However, biologically speaking, I am just not sold on the fact that we're meant to lose our minds every month. I just don't believe that. And I think that culturally, if there was ever a condition that needed a makeover, it would probably be PMS and possibly PMDD. But that's, you know, a whole other podcast episode. Anyway, the point is, is that what I say is that if you have period related symptoms, so whether that is in the premenstrual time in the luteal phase, so anywhere between like seven and 14 days before you get your period that are disrupting your life, disrupting your relationships, disrupting work, whatever it is that's going on in your life, then they really warrant additional investigation. You have to be looking at what might be triggering that. And so, yes, it could very well be that your progesterone is not rising to where it needs to be. But, it, you know, I also think it's important for us to remember, too, as Dr. Christiane Northrup talks about, she says that the veil has been lifted in the second half of your cycle. And I really appreciate what she says because it's true. You know, estrogen is the happy, nice hormone and you're not really bothered by a whole lot around ovulation. Life is pretty good. And then when estrogen drops and progesterone takes over, I feel like progesterone is a bit of truth serum and we start to see the world a little bit differently and things that didn't get our attention before are now getting our attention. And so we're certainly much more intuitive and interested perspective during this time of our cycle. And we're much more sensitive to stimulation to overstimulation. And if we are constantly pushing ourselves the way we might have done when estrogen and testosterone are high and life was awesome, we will find ourselves in a rut and we will find ourselves lashing out at things that 
were not a problem two, three weeks ago. So I think that it's really crucial for us in the process of tracking our cycle and beginning to understand, you know, how our bodies actually work, that we are cognizant of the fact that we can't be all and be everything and do all the things that we were doing just a few weeks ago, because our bodies are quite cyclical, as we know. And the particular hormone that's dominating at that time doesn't really allow for that, so to speak. Again, like it's our body's natural way of slowing us down in preparation for, you know, blood loss. Like we're going to bleed. I watch this hilarious stand-up routine by this guy recently. And he was, I won't even use the word because it's pretty offensive, but he was like, if I was bleeding out of my, and he talked about all the things he would not be doing. And yet for us women, we feel like we should be doing all the things, even when we're about to get our periods. And I think, again, it's our body's built-in way of asking us to, or telling us to slow down so that we can prepare for, you know, the winter season or your actual period. So that's the first question. And I can't remember what the second one was. The second one was (laughs) cycles going with the lunar cycle or the moon. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. I love this. I always kind of joke that I feel like the moon cycles were kind of made for us. I kind of joke about that because I feel like, you know, it's nice to think that because when you think about it, the moon cycle is about 29 and a half days long. The typical menstrual cycle is somewhere between 27 and 32 days for the most part. But on average, we're about 28 days. At least that's what the science says. And I think that's great. So I feel like, oh, you know, a girl can hope that the moon is meant for us. But what's great about not only the length of the moon cycle, but also the four phases of the moon the moon cycle are very similar to our four phases. So as I was describing earlier, day one of your cycle is day one of bleeding. And so your bleeding phase lasts anywhere from about three to seven days usually. And then you move into what I call the non-bleeding follicular phase, because that's really the first half of your entire cycle. And so then we move from there into ovulation and then the luteal phase. And it's very similar. We have the new moon, the waxing moon, the full moon, and then the waning moon. And so I feel like they kind of perfectly synchronize with our four biological phases. And so with that said, you know, what I have women do who have lost their periods, because again, like you can get your cycle in sync with the moon cycle, but I always think it's better to just have a healthy menstrual cycle. And you can also be in alignment with the moon phases and be in in tune with the natural cycles in our environment. But ultimately what I found the moon phases to be super helpful with is for women who don't have a period, right? So someone who might be wanting to harness these external moon phases to help recreate the phases that you may have lost if your period is missing in action. And so that could happen if you're pregnant, if you're in perimenopause, if you're breastfeeding, or you've had a hysterectomy and you're no longer cycling. And so this living in accordance with the moon cycles really helps to, I feel like, provide a framework for us to live as if we're still going through the phases of our menstrual cycle naturally. And what tends to happen is, you know, women will just get their, you know, get a moon calendar and start to, you know, slow things down during their period phase. And then things will ramp up in their lives as they move towards the waxing and then the full moon phase. And then in the waning and back into the new moon phase, they can start to go inwards and take care of themselves. So I really like that idea of being able to live cyclically if you're not having a period. But also too, I mean, like I talk to women all the time about 
what's happening with you on the full moon, what's happening on the new moon. And I poll people on Instagram all the time and ask them about whether they're ovulating. And it's amazing how many of us ovulate with the full moon, give birth with the full moon, and then get our periods with the new moon. It seems to be the majority of women I speak to, that's the cycle that they're on, which is so awesome. Yeah. Ask any OB nurse or doctor or midwife or, or doula, and they're busy on the full moon, <laughs> right? Like, yes, Something's exactly. happening with the full moon. So Something is. I don't know. The science like doesn't really back this up, though. And again, I don't know who's studying this stuff or if anyone is or if anyone even cares to, but there isn't a whole lot of information out there on that, which is sad. It's, it's okay, okay, right? It's anecdotal evidence. Like We've got all of it at this point. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about bowel movement changes before your period. Oh, yes. Oh, boy. You know, it's so interesting because I really think that the menstrual cycle has a pretty predictable effect on our bowel movements. And like I said, you know, we were talking about this earlier, it's such an uncomfortable conversation to have. And so I would like to preface this by saying that, you know, we don't talk about this in our society, especially for women, right? Like, I'm sure you've heard the joke at some point or another, women don't fart and women don't poop. So whatever, we won't talk about it. But it is really something that's considered quite gross and inappropriate. It's very embarrassing for a lot of us. In fact, a lot of women struggle with constipation. And that can stem back in many cases to childhood because they were either ashamed about it or they were embarrassed in some way. Someone said something or made a joke. And I've met many women over the years in my work, myself included, actually, at some point where you just go to school and you'd hold it all day and then wait and come home and do it. And women going to work and holding it and not going until they got home where they felt comfortable. So this definitely has to change because when we don't have these conversations and there's no education for women about what's going on with their bowel movements, what we end up having is a situation where women have no idea that it's not normal to, you know, go to the bathroom every four or five days or, you know, have to run to the bathroom after, you know, they eat something that's spicy or just had a regular meal. So what I think is really important for us to understand is that when we're looking at our overall menstrual cycle, you will start to notice changes in your bowel movements as you pay attention to your cycle. So really make a note of that if you're using a tracking app of some kind. And so what I find is that our bowel movements tend to be fine in the first half of our cycle. Things move along and, you know, there isn't really any constipation issues maybe sometimes diarrhea, but mostly, and diarrhea for some strange reason, like right at the tail end of someone's period. Can't totally figure that one out, but I've seen that quite a few times. And then ovulation passes and progesterone kicks in. And progesterone is, like I said, it's a great hormone, but the problem with that is that progesterone slows things down, right? So progesterone is a muscle relaxant and it's, you know, in fact, it's actually given to uh, pregnant women to delay labor and preterm birth. So it, because it's effectively reducing that muscle contraction, that uterine muscle contraction. So when you have these muscles that are relaxed, it becomes much more difficult for your bowel to do what it needs to do, contracting to get the digested food through. So then we end up with constipation, right? So what will happen in a lot of cases is progesterone drops, 
the day before your period and you are now riddled with diarrhea or loose stools. And it's just like, really? So, you know, for days or weeks, you've been constipated and now you have the exact opposite effect. So what I think is important for us to understand, though, is that once you start to fix your period problems, like once you start to look at your gut health and your liver health and all of the other aspects of your health, your stress in particular, things will start to shift. Because really what this comes down to is a situation where your hormones are interacting with your microbiome to some degree and you find yourself in a situation where you have, whether it's chronic constipation or you have just debilitating diarrhea in the beginning of your period and then throughout your period, regardless of what you're experiencing, what I find is that, yes, there'll be signs like you'll notice your bowels might change, but they won't be as dramatic as that when you start to improve aspects of your digestive health. I wish we could talk more about all of this for much longer. One thing I do want to touch on before we kind of wrap up in chatting today is that a lot of times we're looking for some answers, right? We're trying to figure out answers. And so we really gravitate toward testing, which I mean, we both use testing because you can't guess things. But the answer isn't always in the testing as much as it is in understanding your body so much. So let's talk a little bit about um, pros and cons and like appropriate testing options because you and I use different tests. So share anything you feel like about testing now. Yeah, I think that, you know, we certainly tend to place a lot of emphasis on test results. And the question I ask of women who've had a lot of testing done or are really seeking a lot of testing is to first start with tracking your cycle, because I want to see the symptoms that you're experiencing. Because as we know, testing doesn't tell you everything. I mean, it certainly can do a good job in some cases, but at the end of the day, we're going to know our bodies better than any test will. And we're going to be able to track our symptoms better than any test will, because as you know, with blood tests in particular, that's just a snapshot of a day in your life. I mean, really, that's going to tell you something that, you know, is very myopic compared to what you'd be able to determine from just a month of tracking your symptoms on a daily basis. So ultimately, test results too can be super helpful in determining a baseline and trying to figure out what might be happening. But I always rely on the symptoms that someone is reporting to me and describing as a you know, a barometer for how to move forward and helping them. With that said, I do think that testing is important with respect to actually getting an idea of what is happening with your hormones. And again, like this idea of a baseline as well, so that you know generally what your hormones are up to, even though they're changing pretty dramatically throughout the month. And so one of the tests that I've used is the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones or the Dutch test. And it gives you such a good amount of information. You know, it'll tell you all about what's going on with your hormones. And they have different tests, which is great too. It's also going to tell you things about your cortisol and your melatonin, as well as some neurotransmitters, which I think is super helpful. And what I think is most exciting about urine testing in general is the second layer. So the ability to see what's happening with your hormones when they're broken down in your body. So they're broken down into hormone metabolites. And so what I found in so many cases is that when someone presents with you know super heavy periods that last 10 to 12 days and they're anemic and they may have fibroids 
hemorrhoids or they have endometriosis or something, this Dutch test, when they have looked at, you know, they've done regular hormone blood testing and their estrogen comes back fine, their progesterone comes back maybe a little low. So maybe that's part of it. But they aren't able to see what's happening with those metabolites. And that to me is like the key. I feel like, you know, that's the solution right there is doing this kind of testing. But with that said, it's a complicated test and it is expensive for a lot of people. So it's not always feasible, which is why, you know, I like for us to come back to the symptoms and not rely so heavily on testing if it's not necessary. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, because you can start with some lifestyle things, which I think I was going to ask you. Tell us why you wrote the book, but I think that's part of the answer right there. Like so many people need help and there's a lot of things you can start with simply right away. Oh yeah, totally. You know, like that's the thing I was thinking about in writing this book is that I really wanted to provide people with education about what could be going on. And then from there, providing a pretty specific protocol for you know, addressing your hormones from a hierarchical view, right? So you're really not just spot treating your low progesterone or your high estrogen or your high testosterone. You're really looking at this from a whole and taking a step back and looking at it as a big picture situation. And so when I wrote the book, I said, okay, we're going to have this protocol for people so that they can really address all of the aspects of our life and our health that would be contributing to their low progesterone. And while it is a more challenging way to do things, I think that on a long-term basis, that's really what we all need to be doing in order to feel our best. And so, yes, like that's why, you know, we're talking about the educational side of things first. Like what is your period? What exactly is it supposed to look like? What's going on in those four phases of your cycle from a hormonal perspective? And then of course, you know, what's happening with your hormones? Like how do those actually work? And why is hormonal imbalance such an opaque, weird term that I don't totally understand? So I like to break that down and then, you know, really go into what food I think people should be eating. Again, I think that it's, you know, it's really dependent on your physiology, your genetics, your lifestyle currently, your exercise. I mean, there's so many aspects of it. And that's why I kind of joke that we shouldn't really have a specific diet that treats everyone because that just doesn't really work. And I'm sure you know this too, like you've seen this so many times that when we're using one diet and it's not working for us, but it's working great for our friend or our husband, you know, it's just so frustrating. And I think that, again, we have to continue to tune back into our own intuition. I feel like women have been pulled so far away from that internal compass, that voice. I feel like the voice is a whisper at this point. And we're not tuned into what actually works for us. And so we're just continuing to look outside of ourselves. And so coming back to how does food actually make you feel? What are those blood sugar signs? Are you noticing any of those? If you are, then you need to pay attention to, you know, how much protein you're eating or how much fat you're eating and maybe how many carbs you have and on your next plate. And then from there, you know, we're looking at your liver function and your gut function and stress and your thyroid, because of course, all of those play an intricate role in your menstrual cycle function as well. So it really is to me, a whole body type experience that we need to look at at some point or another. Yeah. And I think there's many phases. I think when what you just said there, someone could feel like, oh my gosh, that's a lot. And it is. But just know like everyone is in a different place. So yeah. where someone starts is in a, you know, everyone's not on the same chapter of their personal life story. So Nicole, where can people find you? 
So you can find me on my website, NicoleJardim.com. And I've got a great blog with a ton of information on there about all the things we've been talking about and then some. And you can find me on Instagram. The Instagram account is Nicole M. Like Madeline Jardim. Someone took the Nicole Jardim (laughs) before I could get to it. And you can also find me on my podcast, The Period Party. And I also have my book, Fix Your Period, coming out on April 28th. You've got a wealth of resources in the book and also on my website with my blog and my programs. Thank you, Nicole, so much for coming on. It was a very fun conversation and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Krista. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 